Hey, Phil, I'm just wondering, in your time away, what did you learn about yourself? I think there were um, there were a number of things that, that I certainly learned, but it's given me more than that an opportunity to really prioritize those that I love, those that I care about, and develop a path forward so that I can be more engaged, be more intentional with uh, when I'm with the people I care about, and also um, have a, a little bit more balance in my life going forward off the golf course. Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck, back for another Fire Drill podcast. Far away from me for audio reasons is my frequent wingman, Michael Bamberger. We've sneaked into the locker room of the Brookline Tennis Club, um, or the Country Club Tennis Club. We, uh, this, this place really is a country club. I mean, they've got amazing facilities. And, Do you know uh, Peter Jacobson's joke about it? No. What? They couldn't come up with a name? <laughs> it's pretty good. I guess when you're the first one in the whole world... At least the United States. Um, we're going to do an instant reaction to Phil's presser. Um, we just walked in from that a few minutes ago. Uh, Michael, what do you think? Uh, you know, I hadn't seen him since the PJ Championship uh, in the flesh. And uh, just being in the same physical room as Phil reminded me that I'm really very fond of him. Even as screwed up as he is and as self-absorbed as he is and as manipulative as he is, I like him. I can't tell you particularly why, but I do. I'm uh, same. I mean, I think Phil is—he's such a fun personality, despite everything. Like, even you know that that little room when Christine Brennan was reading that long letter. It's like, is there a question there? Like, yeah. you would think that he'd be on his best behavior. He's trying to win back hearts and minds, but he couldn't—he couldn't totally hold it in. That was like the real Phil. I mean, he's a smart aleck, and he's got an edge. Um, Not to make this about us, there was a very interesting moment because uh, have you seen? Phil, when was the last time you made eye contact with Phil prior to today? Yeah, that's a good one. Did you um, championship? At the Ocean Course? Uh, well, what followed that? I mean, it was the U.S. Open. Probably, yeah. I mean, it certainly was last summer. And I didn't, you know, some people may or may not know. I went over to the Live event in London. And Phil only really did one uh he did one big press conference. I was still flying over. So then after his first round, I was hoping to ask him a question. It didn't work out. We never even really acknowledged each other. So this was the first time. I was happy. I just asked him a softball question. You know, what, is, what did he learn about himself in his time away? And I'm actually glad he just kind of answered. It wasn't a great answer, but it just sort of took the air out of things. And we can all like move on now. What would be your own answer to your question? Your, your, your question was, you know, what have you learned about yourself with all the therapy and your time away from golf? Uh, you've observed him very keenly at the live event and, and then today. Um, physically, he looks different and he looks the same. It's kind of hard to say, but what would be your own? Of course, we're, we're, we're mind reading here, but what would be your sense of how he's yeah. different? I thought he looked good. You know, he's actually put on a little bit of weight. He was slightly emaciated, you know, like Phil's an, an, a double down personality. And so he wasn't an incredible eater. He would have like a quadruple cheeseburger. That's why he was a little heavy. And then... When he went to lose the weight, I, to me, he looked a little skinny. And yeah. I think I think he looks good physically. He looks strong. You know, I yeah. was I was very close to him. Like, he looks like he's been, he's been lifting. Yeah. And I, I like the scruff, you know. It's kind of, 
get a little bad boy, anti-hero vibe. So yeah. I thought just physically he looked good. Um, how, how I would answer that question for Phil, I think maybe he learned that golf is not as important to him as he thought. Mm -hmm. I think it's been the biggest thing in his life since he was a little boy. Mm -hmm. um, this was his first break from competitive golf, you know, probably ever. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he broke his leg skiing uh, in 1994, hot dogging, and that kept him on, on the shelf for 10 weeks. But even then, there was this urgency to get back, and it was all looking forward. And when is my leg ready? When can I hit drivers? When can I go, go, go? And, you know, he said, this is my, I got a chance to be still. I thought that was like a really interesting phrase. Right. Um, you can imagine he's had a, a big, crazy life. And, um, you know, he's, he was skiing. He was backpacking. He was hanging out with his family. He was going to his nephew's Little League games in San Diego. I think he enjoyed that. And it was like a reset. And um, I think there's a sincerity there. A part of the appeal of the live schedule is that it's manageable. You know, you can play a couple times a month. If that, you know, more like more like once a month, really, and, and sprinkling the majors, and um, maybe it was his first time getting off the treadmill, and he kind of appreciated that. So I think that was a, a takeaway for him. And um, you know, he's an adrenaline junkie, and I think he's always thrived on the energy. And even his high stakes dealings with the Saudis and the tour, and his freighted phone call to me, like all of that was energy, and it was there was risk, and he loved that. And for him to like now take this tack, like I'm not gonna answer any controversial questions, I'm gonna keep it all in house. Like, I think he's learning to bring the temperature in the room down a little bit for himself and it probably feels good. Right, right. But what, what didn't he as a, as a lifetime member of the PGA prior to signing up with Liv, couldn't he have just sort of cherry picked his tour and played when he felt like it? Yeah, that, that's the inconsistency in that. No one was making him play, but I think, you know, he has he has contracts, he probably had to honor those. They have a, probably have a minimum number of tournaments and that's all been, taken away like I don't think you can underrate how much it means for a guy like Phil to lose all of his corporate masters that was a huge part of his schedule because what they were paying him it wasn't for the logo on his on his shirt it was for his time it was like four six or eight or ten corporate days a year and that was a huge part of his schedule like getting all these around the tournaments and having to show up and having to perform like you're always on in those scenarios like you're the star you're the reason they brought in all their VIP clients and so stripping all that away has got to be a huge relief even though you know, he missed the money, but not for very long because now he's signed with Liv. So it's like he's got all the money and he's got a lot less work and a lot less responsibilities. That's got to be freeing. Would you, would you be in a position to any forensic accounting where even given all that he's lost and what he may have gained here, whether he's ahead or behind of where he was? Yeah, I mean, I was able to get some snapshots of Phil's gambling and his, his financial health, but no one knows the whole complete picture except for him and probably a few professionals. So... Um, I, I don't think Phil was ever headed to the poor house. I mean, a guy like that can always make money. The key is, can he hold on to it? And if he's really sincere about addressing his gambling addiction, which is a powerful world, word he just started using, right. then he'll be fine. I right. mean, he's, he's always going to make money. I think in the past, he was just spending it as fast as he was making it, which can be stressful. He's going to make a heck of a lot now if he can just be more responsible. He's, he's fine. Well, he's used this phrase, I think, maybe two or, or more times now. Um, that he has been addressing this gambling issue for a number of years, that has surprised me because I've always thought of him as a very active gambler. Uh, if, let's think of a, someone who's a publicly recovering alcoholic, uh, Tom Watson. If we suddenly started seeing Tom Watson casually drinking at, at bars, it'd be like, it would be alarming because, well, you said to David 30 years ago that you're a recovering alcoholic. I hope I have that all correct. I think I do. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, how did you? How have you interpreted that that sort of odd comment that I've been working on this for a while? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably sincere. You know, anecdotally, after Amy and and their son almost died in the delivery room, you know, Phil stopped gambling for a period. He kind of made this this vow to lead a more purposeful life, and he launched his charitable foundations and all that. And I think there's been periods where he has stopped gambling, but it's always come back in his life. I'm sure in Phil's world. You know, playing a thousand dollar Nassau in a Tuesday practice round of tournament doesn't count as gambling. That's part of the competition. That's getting tournament sharp. And losing a thousand dollars is not—he's not going to feel that. But if you're betting a million dollars on the Super Bowl and then you have twenty or thirty or forty college basketball games day after day, like that is a gambling addiction, and that's where the money goes. So I think I think for him to play casual games and bet on them. That that might be okay. I'm just speculating, and I think that there's always going to be an element of that in his life. But that's part of his golf preparation, and, and part of like right. bringing meaning to his to all these rounds of golf he plays in a year. I you know I don't think that would raise a red flag. But when, when you're when you're cycling through dozens and dozens of meaningless you know May baseball games, like right. that's a real problem. Right, and like Pete Rose. Um, uh, betting on the Cincinnati Reds when he was the player manager for the Reds uh, in the in their early nineties, um, we can. I, I do not know the answer at all. And Alan, you might have some insight into it. Do we have any? Is there any hint ever from any of your sources that he bet on himself during PJ uh, Tour events? I wish I could answer this question <laughs> with, with with what I know, but it was told to me off the record, so uh-huh. I, have, I have to like honor that. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, I think that, you, you know, I think Phil's being sincere in, in, in addressing his, his problem, but I think he may also try to be get out in front of some other revelations that may come. And everyone knows that Billy Walters is, is writing this tell-all book, and Billy knows a lot more about Phil's gambling life than anyone else on the planet. And so that there may be an element of... of uh, Phil's trying to just control the story a little bit. And you acknowledge you, you have a problem that was out of control. You take ownership for it. You're, he talks a lot about the therapy and it's a lifetime commitment. And so that, that may be a hedge against you know, any, any revelations that are coming. That's potentially a very hairy area for Phil, to say the least. But also in the context of just human, be- human nature being human nature, you know, Jay Monahan, when he's talking about Tiger, right, you know, after running his car off the road, you know, we're a family, we, you know, we're together, we're together. It was not true. It was never true. It's not, you know, if you can play your way off the tour, there's a lot of ways to, to, uh, to, to lose your st- tour status. But now he has asked for a tour suspension and he has one, which means he is the enemy of the PGA Tour. He is clearly the enemy of the PGA Tour right now, no matter what Jay Monahan says. So just human emotion being a human emotion. If you add to that, oh, now we're going to dig out, we're going to dig up all the stuff that we buried for a number of years because it was convenient. That could be a very difficult situation. Alan, I want to emphasize again, <clears throat> we're reading between a lot of lines here. Yeah, there's a difference between reported fact, and we're trying to infer where things could go. And that's yeah. what we're doing here. Yeah, no, that that's an interesting component. And like even in my book, there's that story of Gary McCord's in the tower, and and Phil comes to his holes. And they kind of make eye contact and McCord flashes like a couple fingers and those become the odds it feels going to make this 15 or 20 footer. <laughs> and based on, if you know, if he makes it or not, McCord would wad up these $20 bills and throw them out of the tower to Bones. And I think that's a really cute story. Um, but I did have people say to me, oh, is that like a Pete Rose moment? You know, Phil's betting on the competition. It's like 20 bucks with Gary McCord, I don't think is a big deal. But 
At the same time, the purse that week was what, five million, six million, seven million, eight million? Like Phil needed that juice, that energy. And um, right. so it's, it, it is revealing. Right. But, um, what, so how would you grade his performance in the press conference today? Well, it was outstanding in terms of him doing what he wanted to do, which was not make his situation worse, impossible to make it better. And uh, the questions uh, were, there was a lot of anger in the questions I felt. You know, you're hurting Christine Brennan's voice. I don't know who the fellow was from, uh, it sounded like a, 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 a British accent, uh, maybe Scottish accent. Um, uh, there just seemed to be an animosity. Uh, and a lot of it maybe is rooted in the source of the money that that, uh, uh, yeah, well, that, that, that Phil has. Now. I would say all of it. I mean, if this money was coming from, you know, an Australian... Um, oil company, they even have oil in Australia. The point is, I don't think anybody yeah. would really care. Well, that, yeah, this a media the, magnet like uh, Kerry Packer. Yeah, ago. I was thinking of Kerry Packer because yeah. he loves golf. Like whatever, you know, if this was if this was coming from um, the Bank of, of Ireland, like like whatever, it would be a totally different conversation. So, but yeah, the the Saudi thing. I mean, and it was brought up in this thing in the press conference. I mean, two of the planes of nine eleven left from Boston. Yeah, like that is part of the collective memory of this city. Yeah. And here we are in Boston. And yeah. Um, I, yeah. all that said, and I think they're totally fair questions, um, I did have this feeling of, of empathy for Phil up there. Like, this is a guy who, um, you know, when he's hitting flop shots in his backyard and he's 10 years old and just trying to be the best golfer he can be, like, he never could have imagined that all the love and adoration would curdle and he'd be up there in this firing squad of taking these hard questions and probably in real time thinking, man, did I do the right thing? And Phil, Phil chose this path. I, I'm not absolving him of responsibility, but I just, I couldn't help but have that feeling for him. And also it was just, it was a tough room. Like, I don't know if people at home know this or could tell, but the USGA did not build like a formal interview room for this, this tournament, partly because it's a small footprint. It's also a cost saving thing. And so we were all crowded, this hot, tight. It was a little element of anarchy in there, yeah. people shouting. And also, the session was over, and Paul Azinger, who was probably uh, Phil's captain at one point in his Ryder Cup, would, he, was Phil, would Phil have been on that team? Yeah, yeah. Asking a question, and it's a damn good question. What would your advice be to Jay Monahan? And Phil blew that off. I know. From Paul Azinger, his fellow PGA champion winner. I know. Well, I mean, in fairness to Phil, he was staying on script. Like he, and he, you know, a lot of Phil's problems through the years have been started with his mouth. He's talked out of school a lot, and he's taken a lot of private beefs public. It even goes back to when we were talking for my book. Like, you know, a lot of this stuff is because he, it's been said many times, he has to be the smartest guy in the room, and he's an oversharer, an over-explainer, and he loves the sound of his own voice. And he showed a lot of discipline in this press conference because I feel like there was a few times he was ready to let it go, but he kept using the word respect. I respect their feelings. I respect your question. I respect the different point of views. You know, and he was just trying to hammer that theme like, we may all disagree, but let's respect each other. Now, of course, he wants it to flow both ways, and he's not really feeling much respect, but I think it was that choice of words was interesting. Yeah. And you know who must be laughing watching this at home? Tiger. It's like, you finally figured out my playbook. <laughs> yeah, say nothing. You say nothing. You're going to be up there for 18 minutes. So the question is, how many words can you use on the benign questions to get you closer and closer to 18 
and then be done and not say anything I know. of any value whatsoever. <laughs> and he did that today. And the funny thing is, in fraternity, reporters have asked, you know, two questions in one because it's hard to get the mic back. So we do that all the time. Uh, I have two questions for you, Phil. Um, on the 14th hole, is that a seven iron? And, and then what would this victory mean to you? Like that happens constantly, every press conference. Yeah. But you know, Phil is like acting like this is information, this is too much, I can't yeah. handle it. But again, that was just a way of sort of controlling the message, controlling the tempo. And under some hard questioning, I don't think he, he took a wrong step. I think he controlled himself. I think he controlled the room pretty well. What, what was it like for you just on the most emotional level? I mean, you've spent so much time thinking about Phil You've wanted to have a sit-down interview with him for your book. You never really got that. You didn't get that, but then you did get this very odd call, which you used very effectively. Uh, you've become a big thing in this whole story. And now there you are, 12 feet from the guy that's been in your thoughts for so long, and you're actually having an exchange. What was that actually like for you? Well, it was just a relief. I mean, I was never going to ask him some sort of gotcha question. Like, I was, it was a sincere question. He was talking about all this work he's done. I'm curious what he's learned about himself. He, he kind of gave a boilerplate answer. And, and Were you was, nervous at all asking it? Not when I was asking it, but there was some, some tension in the buildup. I was like, because, you know, I talked to the USGA guy. I said, are you going to give me the mic? He's like, oh, you want to ask a question? I said, yeah, I'd like to ask a question. He's like, okay, we'll see how it goes. Like, I, you know, before Phil came on the stage, if, I don't know if you saw that, he pulled a couple of USGA people behind uh, and he was he was there having a little powwow. So who knows what was said? I mean, credit to the USGA. They didn't try and censor anybody. It's not their job. Um, but yeah, I'm just relieved. I got We got to make eye contact. I got to ask a pretty simple question. He answered it. I mean, he could have been a dick. He could have ignored it. He could have called me out. And that's fine. It's his prerogative. But I think it just takes some of the air out of the whole situation. Yeah. I think, you know, the reason I feel something for Phil here is that his greed is out of control. He won the PGA Championship at age 50. He could go on the senior tour and pretty much win any time he wanted. He probably or possibly could have become the first player to win the, the U.S. Senior Open, the, the Senior British Open, the PGA in, the, in one year. I don't think anyone's ever done it. Correct me, readers if, if, or listeners, if I'm wrong. Um, he, could, he was in such great shape for a last act. The CBS thing was waiting for him. He would have been great at it. His kids are, you know, in college and getting out of college. And for any normal person, it's more than you could possibly want. And it wasn't enough for him. Yeah. And he turned his life upside down because of it. And uh, it's sad, really. I it's know. easy to criticize him, but it's just actually uh, pathetic. It is. It's like pure Shakespeare. At the, at his it greatest is. achievement... It would never been more beloved, and it's all gone now. And um, but it, 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 the money, no one gets in bed with the Saudis without the money. But there was also this element of Phil wants to be this maverick. He wants to be this agent of change, and he he wanted to reshape the sport in his image. It wasn't it wasn't just greed. It was also ego. It was also righteousness. It was also like a little vengeance with the PGA Tour. Who through you know he's talked about. It. He's had all these battles with him. He hasn't won very many of them, and so. There was more at play than just the money, but certainly the money is the biggest reason. But, but, all, I mean, but all those things I just cited are not necessarily healthy, positive attributes, right? Like it's, to what you're saying, like there's, there's an element of Phil that, and maybe he's working on this, like there's been some, some, some stuff in him that's untidy and it leads to messiness.
Well, how about being 51 years old, you know, having, you know, anyone's been married a long time, there are lots of ups and downs in marriage, but, you know, that marriage has stayed together, they've raised children together, uh, he's traveling, he's home, life is challenging, and, uh, and you actually think that money, more money, you're a multi-multi-millionaire, you've got a jet, you've got private homes, you ski whenever you want, and to think that more money is actually going to change your life? I don't know how someone could be in at, in their early fifties and be that unaware of themselves because it's not going to. I, I mean, I think anyone would tell you that. I don't know. Just looking at my own life, I don't think it's going to make them happier. I'd say it's impossible. I know. What are the things that are meaningful in life? It's mostly friendships, relationships, the people around you. And I think of like, you know, Pebble Beach is my home tournament. Phil's obviously won there five times. That's a place that's very special to him. Everyone knows his grandfather was a caddy. Like Phil, that whole week. Is it, he's, there's dinner parties every night he goes to. He has a lot of friends in the community. He goes out and plays Cypress on Wednesday. He's got this fancy dinner with Jim uh, Nance and his pals. And like, uh, I've seen Amy out there and she's got all her friends and they have their favorite restaurants in Carmel and they've got her, their favorite shops. They, they buy their kids clothes. Like, like that week is part of their life. It has been for a quarter century. And he's beloved there. And he's got this whole network of people that might be the only time he sees them, right. might not, but it's like a big deal to go there. They love it. It's an easy flight from San Diego, all these things. And like to give all that up, like you may never see those people again in that context. Right. And, you know, you may never be able to use, use his grandfather's special little coin that week at Pebble Beach that his grandfather earned, you right. know, almost a hundred years ago for caddying at Pebble Beach. Like there's just, um, something is lost there. And that you're not going to find in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, playing at this live event with no fans. You don't know anybody. And you can't leave the hotel anyway because there's nothing to do. Like, it's um, that to me is a sad part of the story. What these guys have given up. Now it's their choice. I'm not. It's the world's tiniest violin, but there is there is a community that they're leaving behind. And 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 to dovetail on that, uh, um, if this leads to the demise of the PGA Tour. If all of a sudden all these young players who we're hearing about are considering it, if they actually do go, if the next generation of great college players doesn't even isn't even interested in the PGA Tour, goes straight to this live tour, and the PGA Tour becomes a second-rate tour or doesn't exist at all, he will be the poster child for the death of the PGA Tour, and that's a really lousy legacy. Am I missing something there, or is yeah. I think that's accurate? No, I know. I mean, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but yeah, because. We're here, we're here at the U.S. Open and talking to people and it's like, oh, Colin Markowitz is going to jump. Xander Shoffley is going to jump. Uh, so-and-so is going to jump. Like, you know, up till now, it's been mostly, it was like these old timers playing out the string and looking for one last payday. And that's how it was spun. Like, okay, just, they can have them. Bryson changes that. I mean, he's had the injury and he's got his own little issues, but he still hasn't even reached his prime. He's a young guy. And so now if you start getting the young talent, if you were to get a Morikawa who has an unlimited future, um, you know, that is, that is a, that is a brutal blow to the PGA tour. So, um, we'll, we'll see what really happens, but you're right. I mean, Phil's always going to be the guy who pushed this to the forefront fairly or not. He's just always going to be the one who this it's around it's his millstone. So I think, I think, <laughs> you know, Phil talked about, it. he wants to play both. Like he's, you can read between the lines. He's hoping there's a, a compromise and a resolution I've been saying this, you know, since last week. I, to me, the tour's already lost. How quickly they acknowledge that and they realize that, and they 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 strike a deal. Like, you know, Monahan's been so prideful 
Like he wears it as a badge of honor. Like I haven't even talked to them. I won't even take a meeting with them. To me, that's crappy leadership. Like you have, whatever your personal distaste, and you know, he's made it so personal. Oh, you know, you don't have to apologize for playing the PGA Tour. Well, like that, that morality and that question has already been answered by the players. They don't care. So Jay's already fighting a losing battle there. Now it's about economics. It's about reality. And the reality is the Saudis have un, unmatchable money. So what are you as the commissioner of the PGA Tour going to do to save your circuit? And right now he's not doing much. Like it's time to engage with the Saudis. Freaking Joe Biden's going over there to talk to him because it's pragmatic. Now, right. um, you know, you can say that an American president needs Saudi oil to keep the, the country running. And that's a little more important. You don't right. really need golf. But um, the fact is, like, it's almost like Monaghan has punted. He's put it all on the players. But um, the players are starting to vote with their feet and their pocketbook. And, right. um, you know, but you're right. If, if the PGA Tour is completely diminished, um, this that's part of Phil's legacy. It'll go right back to his November call to you. He said, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to bring transformational change to the PGA Tour. When he said that, I don't think he meant the transformational change would be the death of the PGA Tour, but it may prove to be, or a totally weakened, different PGA Tour. Yeah. No, it's 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 wild how this is all played out, and um, I think for Phil, just to be here is is a big deal. I mean, the, the, he's got to survive this week. It doesn't matter how he plays, but the crowd, you know, the term "mass holes" is a real thing. Like how right. they're going to treat him. He said it. One of the greatest days he's ever had in golf was was the Ryder Cup here. Um, if he can, if Phil can get through this week, then he can sort of his new reality will be baked in. But it's going to be wild to see the reception and how he deals with any heckling. What if if he's going to keep talking to reporters after his rounds? Like this is this is a big week for him. You know, he's trying to win hearts and minds. I think he did a pretty good job in the press conference, but. Um, this is this is really the first test. What do what does the casual golf fan think about Phil Mickelson, about all this live stuff? Like we, we're a little bit of a echo chamber, and right. and golf Twitter is not real life. Like real life is outside on, outside on the other side of the ropes. Right. And how they respond to Phil is going to be really interesting. If I offer you one forty nine for two rounds, do you want the under or the over? That's a good number. I want the under, but I think it'll be the over. <laughs> I mean, I. I will say, like the 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 greens over at the Centurion Club, they had a lot of movement, and Phil was just struggling with his speed the whole time. And um, but these greens are going to be faster and more treacherous, and he called it one of his worst putting weeks ever. So um, his iron play was really good, and a couple rounds he drove it pretty well. So if he can dial in the putting, then you know all he has to do is shoot one or two over on Thursday. He's in this tournament, but I think he can shoot eighty because of all the buildup and the emotion and everything else. And when you say in the tournament, you mean play 72 holes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah. would be a tremendous, yeah. just like Tiger Augusta, Yeah, that would be a tremendous accomplishment. It would be, but the thing is, like, these are the smallest championship greens in the world, along with Pebble Beach, and everyone is going to miss greens. If you hit uh, 10 or 11 greens in regula regulation, that's probably average. So now it becomes a chipping contest, and... You know, Phil still got his wedge, so... Yeah, but if he doesn't putt, well, it won't matter. If he doesn't putt, well, no. But this is a... I'm just saying, like, this is a setup. This is not um, Aaron Hills, where, you know, huge fairways, huge greens, and it demands a different skill set, you know. This this is really going to be a lot of short game magic out there, so... Yeah. I'm not predicting he's going to win, but 
If you can survive the first round, maybe it'll make it interesting. Alan, tell me how I'm looking at this correctly or incorrectly. I, we're, MBS is an amazingly divisive figure on the world stage. Yeah. Properly so. Yeah. Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, just so we're all clear. Uh, Donald Trump, yeah, I mean, even among our listeners, has an enormous fan base and following and an almost equally enormous, if not as big people who think the single greatest threat to American democracy in our lifetimes among yeah. Americans. Do you think it was a struggle at all for Phil Mickelson uh, to be aligned with Trump because two of these live events are going to be played on Trump golf courses? Yeah, I mean, that was a very insightful question that somebody asked in the press conference of, of Phil. And he, you know, he said, I care more about the quality of the test and, and the fan experience, which on some level is true. Like when these guys go to a tournament, all they care about is making birdie. The history, the... Uh, architectural bona fides, that's a second secondary concern for all tour pros. They rate the course based on how well they played and how many birdies they made, right? Like, So I think on some level, that's an honest answer. But it was also, as with many of the questions, Phil kind of answered, but he kind of didn't. And, um, you know, I know that he's voted for Obama at least once. And he's very, you know, Phil and Amy are pretty liberal on social issues. So it's like, uh, I'm sure it gives him a little bit of pause because by by showing up and playing on Trump's courses, you are legitimizing him, just like you are you are doing some sports washing for the Saudis. And so, I would expect that Phil has a little cognitive dissonance there, and he um, he would probably prefer that they were played at um, you know at uh, some other club down the road. But I mean, how do you think that conversation goes with his kids? You, yeah, you followed his kids to some degree on social media. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, saying he played the Masters plenty of times when it had all-male membership. And, um, you know, there's he's been going over to Saudi Arabia for years now playing in that tournament, even before the Live stuff started, the one on the European Tour event. I mean, I think professional golfers are not tortured by this. Given uh, Schwartzel said it last week in London, or a couple of days ago anyway. Like, you know, I, I just been, I never think about where the money comes from because you can go down this rabbit hole and... You know, we, uh, they play in China, they play in, in Qatar, they play in the UAE. I mean, if, if you want to be honest about it, you know, the U.S.'s foreign policy is, is questionable in a lot of areas. Like, I think the players have just made peace with it. Like, I am a professional golfer. By definition, I play golf for money. And wherever the money is, I'm going to go play. And, you know, Rory, who's become the conscience of the, of the sport, you know, he's, He's taken that hard line, but he's played in China plenty of times. And, you know, they have actual concentration camps in China. So I don't know. It's um, it's a slippery slope. I, the Trump stuff is, is really interesting because that's going to be awkward for the whole sport because, you know, he's going to be there living large, pressing flesh behind the green. Uh, they're going to have his excellency and and whatever titles that these big Saudi guys have. They're going to love rubbing elbows with a former president and that's going to be just something that hangs over those events. And, um, but when you sign on the dotted line with live, that's what you're signing up for. They knew the schedule and they committed. This is not a secret. And so I guess that answers your question. He's at peace with it. I mean, imagine, I didn't want, this is such a rabbit hole, but it's not crazy. Imagine if uh, MBS and his acolytes wanted a second Trump term uh, and won't talk to Biden, but will talk to Trump. I mean, basically, you could use golf and the connective tissue of golf to affect the, the, the next presidential election really very easily. Phil Mickelson could become the Secretary of Commerce 
in the chairman next of OPEC. In, OPEC. Chairman of OPEC. In the next Trump administration, I mean, what would be the Phil might be the head of the, the FBI? Like, who knows? Like, that wouldn't be good for us. That would not be good for us, especially me. I mean, <laughs> the the whole thing is like, but you're not wrong. Like, I'm sure there'll be a big Saudi contingent that comes to those those Trump events, just like. You know, there's going to be a bunch. I'm sure Jared Kushner will go over to the live event that's in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And who knows the back channel communication? And I'm not being serious that Phil's going to have a political role necessarily, but if he maybe he's going to. I think they already do. I think they are pawns. I think all these players are pawns in some big geopolitical thing that we are way too unsophisticated to understand. But yeah. Well, Some I mean, our colleagues elsewhere would be. Well, and I mean, in, in the pro am over at the live event, Phil did play with um, the guy who runs the public investment fund in Saudi Arabia. You know, with however hundreds of million billions of dollars. And who does that guy report well, to? MBS. And that guy, that guy by himself, His Excellency Yasser something. He is one of the most powerful people on the planet. Phil's out there playing golf with him, and so yeah, as you're saying, like um, the it is. It's an uncomfortable moment for the sport. Like just when we thought like, okay, we survived Shoal Creek and Augusta National has female members and like we've we've survived a lot of this stuff as a sport. Who would have ever guessed now we got to deal with Saudi Arabia and geopolitics and all that? Like it's really not a great development. Do you feel like this raises or lowers the profile of the four major championships? Oh, it raises them because they have always been the most meaningful tournaments now, especially so. You got if half of the world's best players are playing fifty-four hole shotgun exhibitions, the only tournaments that matter and the only measuring stick for who's really the best player is going to be the majors. So I don't think there's any question about that because what used to be really strong tournaments are going to be diminished, right? Like if these guys can't play in the World Golf Championships, if they can't play the LA Open, they can't play Memorial. Like those were always good fields. Like so now. There may be four times a year right. when you get the best players together, only the majors. Right. And that's why it's meaningful for Phil to be here. And he's going to play the Open at St. Andrews. Like, it, it keeps him in the mix on, on the biggest stages. Even as all this other stuff is churning, like, um, he still has the biggest stages. And he's Tiger's not here. Phil will have the biggest galleries. Like, you know, Colin Morikawa is a better golfer than Phil Mickelson right now. So is John Rahm. So are a bunch of people. But they don't inspire any emotion. Phil yeah. does. I mean, I guarantee you, Phil have the biggest crowds out there. When, when you were writing your Phil book, did you do any sort of deep study of Kepka's round on Sunday at the PGA Championship? Oh yeah, because yeah, I didn't. You know, I remember, of course, Phil holding out that bunker shot. You know, in the signing for the kid, that was a big turning point. But I forgot until a friend of mine was reminding me the other day that some of the really loose, crazy shots that uh, that Kepka hit on ten. I think he went was ten a par five, two hundred seventy yards, and he went for it and wound up in the gun. She made six. Yeah, that, uh, I think a little later in the round, but okay. yeah, yeah. You know, they're just turning, like, that was Brooks Kepka's tournament to win. Yeah. And, you know, a lot changed uh, for him and for Phil because he because he did, uh, and he's never really been the same since then. Well, and Kepka said that Phil got in his head, you know, like, you, you, one interesting part of Phil's press conference today was when he was asked a question, he would gather his thoughts and you could... You can see the angel and the devil on each shoulder, but he was going through his talking points, going through his coaching. It's like he had a swing thought for the press conference. And, but as you said afterwards, Michael, it was like watching Phil at the ocean yeah. course where he stood on the tee and he just stared and he was just like, it was like Jason Day meets Tiger. I yeah. never saw Phil do that before. Yeah, that was, and, and so, others, but, you know, yeah, but Davis it was up on it. at it's the ocean it. course that Phil really did that and that got in Brooks's head. And Phil was playing slow out there and, yeah. 
he asked for a few rulings and Kepka got totally flustered. So, yeah. and, and he later hailed Phil for like the gamesmanship, you know, he, that was the word he used. So he wasn't that mad about it, but he admitted that, that Phil got to him. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with you. These, uh, these four majors, uh, this U.S. Open, first of all, we're here at the country club. We're here in the men's locker room of the, <laughs> of the, of the rackets facility. Uh, it's, you know, it's just great to be uh, really traditional. And now, I mean, you know, maybe I'm old fashioned in this way, but I mean, the, you know, the ghosts we met and Payne Stewart and the things that have happened here over the years, you know, Payne Stewart playing well in that Ryder Cup and then, and, you know, conceding, and that, conceding that putt to Yeah, it was a beautiful Monty. moment, you know. Yeah, and, he was gone uh, a couple months later. Yeah, and... Uh, and Phil knows this far better than you and I ever could because of the level he played it. But we know because we love to play golf. It's a slow, difficult sport. And they're going to try to dress this thing up over there at the Whip Series. They'll never make it anything other than what it is, a slow, difficult sport. As you were saying, you know, that Centurion course, never heard of my life. He said, well, it's hard. Yeah. He came back and said, it's hard. It's a hard golf course. Yeah. Well, almost every golf course is hard, really, when you get right down to it because you got to get the ball in the hole. And... Um, so, you know, uh, I have an f- older friend, Sam Reeves, and one of his sayings is, you know, don't jump on bandwagons. This is the bandwagon of all bandwagons for, for, for golf. And uh, uh, I don't know. Bandwagons usually don't, don't play out. Uh, yeah. No, it is, it is like whiplash to go, especially for me, literally to go from there to here. Like, this place is so stately. There is so much history. This is the ultimate examination. I think even... Players today venerate the Masters more, but there's something special about the United States Open. Yeah. The questions that it asks, yeah. you know it's going to push them to breaking point. Like this, to me, is the ultimate golf tournament. I might have more fun at the British Open, and, and the Masters is more exciting. But to me, this is the greatest tournament in the world. And did, did Boris win a, uh, a U.S. Open here in that in that playoff in 63 over yeah. uh, with Arnold and the other guy? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And then, of course, uh, Boris was the guy that had the PGA champion, that was the oldest winner of a major until until Phil blew it out of the water. But yeah. that whole continuum and that texture and that fabric and the fact, you know, you and I've been around the game for a while, we know so many people. It's so rich and beautiful. I mean, it's such a big part of my life. So I, I don't feel angry at this live thing. I just think I, I thought the PGA Tour did lose its way. It is boring. It doesn't feel like a not-for-profit. It feels like fat cat city. There are really major problems with it. But the greatness of golf is its difficulty and the mental and physical challenges it presents. And this lip series to me kind of uh, dumbs it down, and I think Phil must know that. He, you know, he sat at that, he stood at that, stood at that press tournament, press conference today, you know, and said, "Oh, you know, the format hasn't changed in 50 years." Well, of course, it's a lot longer than that; it's way over 100. But the, but the fact is, that format has worked for a long, long time. And the only thing that would be better than 72 holes for, from Tiger's perspective, 90, would be 90, <laughs> or 108. Yeah. I know he would have well, kept winning more and more and more attrition. And that's what this is. And this, you know, we had this conversation with Jeff Ogilvy. This, and we saw it at the PGA Championship. This march to that 72nd hole, and sometimes, you know, like a, a playoff, it's golf. It's yeah. golf at its purest. And we've loved it forever. And the women play the same way. And, you know, the college kids, they typically play a little shorter tournaments, fewer holes, but basically the same idea. Yeah. No, I think there's a there's a purity here, and this is this is like a palate cleanser. Like, all right, we survived the first live event, we survived Phil's press conference, and now we can turn the page. This podcast helps to put an exclamation point on all that stuff, and now 
Like, let's focus on the U.S. Open. Let's this, focus on- this week is going to be about who wins this tournament. It is. Period. And even starting tomorrow or even tonight on Monday. But like, And by the way, I don't know what the first place money is. I mean, if I thought about it, it's probably two and change. Yeah, but who but cares? Who cares? Who That's cares? really the point. Nobody cares. Because you're going to have your name on a trope with Burroughs and Tiger and Hogan and Nicholas. Yeah. You know, and Scott Simpson. <laughs> and Steve Jones. And that's cool, too. That is cool. Yeah, those are great names. All right. Well, I think we put a bow on the Mickelson stuff. Yeah. I think you and I are both ready to move on. I think Unless the, you shoot 68 on Thursday, and then we'll sit in this room and talk about that. That'll be great. I look forward to that. So, All right, Michael. Thanks for being a here. A pleasure. Another Fire Drill podcast is in the books. The first of a bunch this week. We will be podcasting pretty much every day. With, uh, we'll have some special guests. Uh, Michael and I will be part of most or all of them. So thank you for listening, and we will back, and we'll be back at it tomorrow on Tuesday. Uh, and that's it for now from the men's locker room. But when, now, what about our, our friends at uh, Parpoints? Parpoints, Dormy Workshop, and um, the third one is uh, no. That's it. Those are our friends for this podcast. Parpoints, Parpoints and Dormy Workshop, and we, we great. they're great. They're great. We, we really are appreciative. Like, okay, a a free and independent press is important. Now, I'm not suggesting. Do you know, the number one comment I'm getting since joining the Fire Pit Collective is, "I can see they've taken the shackles off." You. Yeah. Oh, it's it's fantastic. I mean, we love it. And you know, me getting like roughed up at this Phil Mickelson press conference over in London has no real meaning to the world at large. But it's indicative of an attitude like, "You guys are a pest. You don't have a you don't have a role. We don't value independence." And so while we make our occasional jokes about our sponsors and they accept them good naturedly, we do appreciate them because it allows Absolutely. us to be here to do this. And and because they're the right kind of sponsors, they're like you guys do your thing. Right. We like golf, and you're going to reach golfers, so that's good for us. But you guys do your thing. Yeah. And you know, it's I, not complicated. Anyone who's gone this deep into this podcast probably appreciates what we have to say. So it's the freaking sponsors that help us get here. So. But maybe we should mention them at the beginning. I know that's bad for him. We'll, we'll make it up to we have enough, we have like seven more of these, Michael. So okay. don't worry. All right. <laughs> All right. That's a wrap from the Country Club. Thanks for listening. Put another log on the fire. Nobody here is getting tired 